Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Nate G, and today I have the total pleasure of chatting with Eric Satz, founder and CEO of Alto IRA. Alto facilitates individuals' investments in alternative assets like real estate, art, and private equity, all from retirement accounts via Alto's self-directed IRA platform. We discussed Eric's motivation for founding Alto in 2018, as well as his extensive career path before then, as an investment banker and venture capitalist, but also as an entrepreneur in everything from coffee to foreign exchange trading, and now at Alto, where he hopes to make it simpler and more accessible to invest in alternative assets. Eric and I discussed the current state of investing in alternatives, including his thoughts on how it makes sense to diversify investment types in a tax-advantaged IRA, especially nowadays. We touched on Alto's strong growth in the past few years, as well as recent and ongoing developments, including its crypto IRA platform. Beyond his current work, Eric also went into his mentality from the successes and failures he's seen over the years as an investor and serial entrepreneur. It was a blast to discuss this and more with Eric, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Eric, nice to see you and welcome to the Warden FinTech Podcast. How are you? I am well, Nate, and excited to be here. Great to see you. All right, so let's dive right into it. For listeners who might not know, can you give us an overview of your career to date and what led you to become a founder in fintech? Sure. I mean, like if anyone's having trouble sleeping, this will this will do it. <laughs> uh, so, I I went to school at uh, Amherst College in Massachusetts, and from there went directly to Wall Street. And I was a financial analyst, you know, doing the proverbial 18 to 20 hours a day for, for several years uh, before I left to start a coffee company in New York City and Manhattan. And that really was my first significant failure is what I will say. So, so after kind of licking my wounds and avoiding bankruptcy, I went back to Wall Street to to bail myself out and did large financial restructurings and then distressed debt investing. And believe it or not, that led me back to the first investment bank that I had gone to out of Amherst, which was DLJ. Uh, and it led me back to DLJ and the West Coast and San Francisco. And I was one of four individuals to help jumpstart the internet investment banking effort for DLJ, and and while there, while doing that, I co-founded uh, my second company, a company called Currenex, which was an online foreign currency exchange business, and that turned out to be the opposite of a big failure, uh, but instead was was a big win, which was a nice change. And then I I moved to Nashville, which is where my wife grew up, and we took our two kids who had been born in San Francisco. And we started an online organic home delivery grocery business, which was going just fabulously until 2008 and uh, the U.S. economy fell out of bed and together with Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns and uh, a bunch of other folks who, who were unfortunately really had their lives disrupted in that process. But that led me to um, start Tennessee Community Ventures, which was a Tennessee-based venture capital fund where the state of Tennessee was the sole LP. And I started that with a, a couple of partners. Um, and while I was doing that, 
I was investing alongside the fund and I wanted to use my retirement money to invest in these companies. I, I had this light bulb moment uh, from, a, from a duration matching standpoint and from a risk reward and tax advantage standpoint, I should be using my retirement money. And the only problem was I didn't know if that was a legal thing to do. I, did, I mean, I knew you can mm -hmm. take your IRA money and give it to Fidelity and invest it in public stocks. I didn't know if you could invest it in private companies or private equity funds or venture capital funds or things we call real assets like real estate or artwork or antique automobiles. Uh, and the long story short there is that you can, but going back to 2013, it was really hard to do. It was hard to figure out and it was super expensive. And so I just had this, I don't know, personality disorder, which caused me to want to solve this thing. And so in t 2006, I began to raise money for, um, actually the company at the time was called SaltFest, which is a funny story, which I'll explain in a second. But SaltFest then launched as Alto in 2018. And, you know, since that time, uh, in 2018, fast forward, we now have 30,000 plus clients and 1.2 billion in assets under administration. But the, the funny story about SaltFest was the first uh, design firm I hired who I hired to create the initial sort of marketing site and user experience came to me one day and said, they, they asked sort of sheepishly, by the way, hey, how much do you like this name SaltFest? <laughs> and, and I said, well, I'm not going to pay you to come up with another one. And they said, oh, don't worry about it. We'll do that for free. Uh, and <laughs> they didn't want their work associated with the name SaltFest. And um, I could explain what it means, but I don't think anybody cares at this point. Uh, so that's where that's where the name Alto came from. And you know, the rest is uh, history. Wow, that is a, a fascinating background, and I appreciate you sharing so much of it from the start. To go further into Alto, I'd love to hear about your pitch for why alternative investments in an IRA. Now, I know you touched on it a bit, but especially for those who might favor passive investing for their IRAs, like in ETFs or mutual funds, given equities typically strong average returns in the long run. What do you say to them? So it's interesting because, Nate, you catch me on the tail end of having come from a lunch in which Jamie Dimon was the, the speaker. And wow. by the way, you only have to listen to him for about 30 seconds and you can understand and, and feel his charisma and energy. And you know why he leads the largest financial institution in, in the world. But someone asked him a question about you know, public equity returns over the last 15 years and where he thinks public equity returns may be over the next 15 years. And aside from the fact that nobody really knows, statistics suggest that we will not see the same level of returns over the next 15 years that we saw in the last 15 years. The growth in, in the S&P 500 and, and the Dow is just like astounding, right? what we expect is maybe 0% return. And there are a whole combination of factors that 
are going into that interest rates, you know, of course, being part of that inflation as well. But what's become somewhat understood today is the need for alternative assets as a means towards portfolio diversification. When we first started talking about this, you know, in 2016 and the need for portfolio diversification, uh, you got a lot of sort of blank stares. Most people were still of the school that 60-40 is what you do, meaning 60% public equities, 40% public bonds. 60-40 is what you do. That provides balance, and that's going to reduce overall portfolio volatility and and optimize for returns over X period of time, call it 20 years, 30 years. And because of the way the public markets have developed and the proliferation of ETFs and mutual funds, everyone has become this passive investor. And now when we add to our public securities portfolios, because most people don't pick individual companies, nor should they, by the way, But when you purchase one more ETF or mutual fund, you're not getting any greater diversification. You're just getting one more mutual fund or ETF. And the reason being is that give or take only 400 public companies matter. Of all the public companies that that we have, and it's, I I don't know what the number is now, but I suspect it's it's around 15,000, I'm gonna guess. Only 400 matter. And all the mutual funds in ETFs are comprised of some subsegment of those 400. So the only way you actually get diversification is to include assets that move independently from the public markets, right? And, and private companies will move independently from the public markets uh, and, and the value of things like real estate and artwork can move and work independently from uh, the public markets. And so I sort of feel like we're at this place where we were with public markets back in the 1970s and Charles Schwab said, hey, you don't have to be really wealthy to invest in equities. You just have to learn, you have to learn how to do it. And you can put a little bit of money to work. It doesn't have to be a lot. And the funny part of this, of course, was that the discounted trade fees with when Schwab started in, in the 70s was, you know, $49.99 a trade as opposed to Robin Hood's mm-hmm. zero, right? But where we are today is trying to figure out how do you invest in alternative assets? What are the questions to ask? What kind of diligence do you perform? And what's in your sweet spot? And that's different for every single individual. But what are you attracted to? What do you want to learn about? What's going to help you do the necessary amount of homework to figure out what it is you should be investing in? Awesome. I think that's really thought-provoking, especially about the sort of traditional narrative that at least has been ingrained in my mind about equities. What is it? Five to 7% performance in the long run, but also just the importance that a few big, you know, tech names, for instance, can have on a multitude of ETFs. And I think we've seen that importance be accentuated, especially in the past couple of years. So that's really great to hear your take on that. So I know we had hosted you in 2020, right at the onset of the pandemic. Yeah, You discussed at that point, the incredible growth you were experiencing in those months. 
So I'd love to hear how Alto has been doing since and most recently, given all the changes and developments since then. So thank you for asking that question. So obviously that podcast happened with your predecessor, Miguel Armaza, who I'm, mm. who I'm a big fan of. If we fast forward the clock, we've got $1.2 billion in assets under administration and uh, 80-something uh, team members and 30,000 clients. And if I go back to 2020 and I think about how many clients we would have had, it probably would have been 3,000, 4,000, maybe 5,000. I can't. Yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking. At any so, rate, tremendous, tremendous expansion. Yeah. And we've also seen since then, I think, intensified competition in the space of IRA alternatives investing. And that makes me want to ask, what are Alto's greatest distinguishing factors? What gives it an edge in the marketplace here? Well, I, I think this may surprise some people and and not surprise others. I believe the single greatest differentiating factor for us is our people and they care they care about each other they care about the customer there's a lot of heart and soul that goes into what we're doing this is people's money it's their retirement it's their future and we take that personally we take it seriously and we take it with an eye towards i don't know what the exact right word is but i'm going to say helping we we want people to be able to do better and we want them to be able to do what it is they want to do and and i say the people because at some point the technology that we've been building which i do believe is hugely differentiated from any other platform out there and it makes it way more easy to invest in alternative assets than than it did when when i first tried doing this by the way which is exactly why i built the company at some point, the technology will be table stakes and, and kind of everybody will have it. And I think if you're trying to build a culture of care and heart and grit and resilience, you know, later after the fact, when, when everybody else has also identified the opportunity that you're going after, I think that's just too late. It's, it's got to be part of the culture from the beginning. And at least I think it's part of our culture. And I think if you if you asked our, our customers, if you asked our clients, and maybe most importantly, if you asked the people who work here, I think they would agree with that. Got it. Awesome. And then we're also in a, in a very different macro environment now uh, than we were a few years ago with much higher inflation and rates, the equity market volatility we've seen. And so as the head of Alto, I think you have a pretty unique view on changes in the alternative investment landscape. So how have these current and recent macro trends affected the volumes or the composition of investments in the Alto platform? So it's not that the composition of investments in the Alto platform has changed as much as the desire and willingness of both the investor as well as the financial advisor community, the registered investment advisors, ha have embraced the objective of adding alternatives to the portfolio. And that new open-mindedness is really what, what's different more so than the exact 
composition of what you find invested in on the Alto platform. It's private equity, it's venture capital, it's funds of both of those ilks. Um, there's more private credit today than 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 we saw previously. So that's that is somewhat of a change, but that's not a big surprise given what the Blackstones, the Aries, the KKRs, uh, the Carlisles of the world are doing. Real estate is always popular. I, I think art, by the way, may be one of those hmm. surprise categories that I wouldn't necessarily have named five years ago, but is certainly becoming a... a, a and I think it's because people kind of like wine, by the way. You know, people can relate. They know what they like. You know, whether it's uh, whether it's wine or art or or other real assets that kind of fit into that category of consumer collectible that also can be, you know, baseball cards, right? Michael Jordan sneakers. These these are things that people feel like they understand and and know. And what's I think really important about these real asset classes is that their returns and their their price movement has almost nothing at all to do with what happens with the public markets. Another asset class that I'll touch on, given that it's just I think a, a big part of the growth of your platform was crypto. So are, are people joining? Alto just for its capabilities in crypto. Maybe that's changed just in the past six months or year. Um, or is it more often paired with other exposures or just the the desire to join Alto for all that it offers? To to date, there's very little overlap between the crypto IRA customer and the Alto IRA customer. And, you know, it's obviously a tough time in, in the markets when just last week the, yeah. the SEC sued Binance and then, you know, a day later turns around and sues Coinbase. Now, I I really have no comment on Binance. I don't know the folks there. I don't know how it's operated. The I, irony is the, the wrong word, but I, I find it hard to believe, hard to understand how in 2021, the SEC under the current commissioner, blesses a company called Coinbase to go public. And then, you know, how many ever months later turns around and accuses them of operating an illegal securities exchange. And those two things don't add up to me. I think it's going to be a, a really long legal battle, which... Uh, <laughs> will be a little bit interesting to follow from the sidelines. But what I was going to tell you is I was looking at our crypto IRA data from from the weekend, and I was looking at it maybe even a little bit more closely than usual. And I was doing that because there were reports that billions of dollars had flown out of Coinbase and Binance over the last last week or so. And so... I wanted to see what our customer was doing. And it turned out that our customer had four more buy orders for every sell order there was. And we were net positive on buys versus sells. Not a surprise when you have four more 
you know, you have four buy orders for every one sell order. The really interesting thing that uh, I saw, however, was that Bitcoin was negative net sales. So there was about $270,000 more Bitcoin sold than bought. But guess what? There was about 270,000 more ETH that was bought than sold. <laughs> and wow. so I, I think maybe there was some transition to ETH based on DeFi and utility capability, but that's pure speculation. But net-net, we had $500,000 of more buys than sells over the weekend. So I think the early crypto customer is in it for the long run. Mm -hmm. I think they believe in the, the value of crypto, uh, which is, of course, is different from blockchain and, and what blockchain technology means. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I certainly am a big believer in blockchain. So I, th I think the early crypto customer is not abandoning the space. And I, I, I don't think we're going to see it be abandoned over the next few years. It seems like these early sort of uh, adopters of crypto might be those that are pretty resilient and in it for the long haul, regardless of, you know, negative short term news or key failures of a few bad actors or something like that. So it's it's very good to hear your your perspective on that too. Yeah, no, I I, I think that's right. I look, I don't think um I don't think Bitcoin and, and ETH are going away. I don't know how many other crypto assets are gonna make the long journey. I just I'm just not smart enough to nor do I have a God, I'm Wow, senior moment. What it what's what, crystal ball. Yeah. A crystal ball, thank you. God. You know, my crystal my crystal ball is not that shiny, you know, to predict, but I, I don't think crypto is is gonna just go poof. I do have one more question on this point. I think crypto staking, you know, whereby investors are earning a bit of yield on their holdings, I think it often goes hand in hand with the concept of crypto that some people have as a long term investment. So in other words, holders of crypto for the long term are likely to be those that are interested in staking. Do you envision adding this functionality to your platform? And I understand it. This, this involves potentially whether crypto is a security, so it might be complicated, but it's, it's a question that I and others, I think, have with respect to your platform. So the, there's a very simple rule of thumb, which is that there's no such thing as a free lunch when something's too good to be true usually is. And and so if you looked at what was happening in the staking markets, there was a reason those rates were, you know, high teens to in some cases low 20s when rates elsewhere by the way were close to zero. And and that's because uh it, it was too good to be true. For me, the question of whether or not we allow staking has to do with an assessment of uh, the system and making sure that the assets that are being uh, used as security for other assets being borrowed are real assets, as in like U.S. dollars. Hmm. Without that, I, I don't know when we will or if we will launch staking. 
So you're open to maybe vetting the most, I guess, tried and true or uh, fiat-backed methods of staking in the future, potentially? I I think that's an accurate statement. Okay. All right. Well, that's good to hear. And I've heard you emphasize Alto's role as a facilitator and enabler of alternative investing in IRAs, but not an advisor of where or how to invest across the spectrum of alternatives. At the same time, I know you want to make investing in alternatives as accessible and equitable as possible. So for those who are new to the world of IRAs and investing, how do you suggest they learn what they're doing to eventually uh, maybe take part in investing in alternatives as an individual? Well, I think there's a difference between the educational side of learning about companies or funds and what it means to invest in one or the other and what it is you're getting in return or may expect to get in return. I think there's something very different about understanding the vocabulary and the mechanics. There's something different about that from, hey, we think you should invest in X because, Mm. right? And it's not our role to say you should invest in X because. And instead, I believe it's our role, and and I think Schwab really did this for for the public equities markets, by the way. Um, I think it's it's our role to help facilitate the access to educational materials. We will be partnering with some folks who have an entire library of information relating to alternative assets, what the words are, what they mean, what the, you know, sort of even beginning with what is equity, what is debt, right? And and just building that, I don't know, literary canon mm-hmm. that will then help you assess uh, the opportunities you ultimately get to look at. And hopefully you'll be looking at those opportunities in the auto marketplace. But I still don't view it as our role to say this is a good investment because we're Mm -hmm. we're not we're not a registered investment advisor. We're not a financial advisor. We're we're here to a help facilitate investments that you know you want to make, or b introduce you to investments that we believe are high quality. And that based on your own due diligence, you conclude the same and and you conclude that it presents uh, an appropriate risk reward opportunity. Mm -hmm. So who are the most common users nowadays of the platform? Is it still mainly accredited investors and qualified purchasers? And is this the main target or are you working to expand? It sounds like there might be, you know, you're partnering with some resources that maybe would help you better expand the, the client base, but I'd love to hear from you on that. Yeah, so I would say the majority of the client base is a credit investor, qualified client, qualified purchaser. So for those who don't know, there are three categories. There are really, you know, four categories of of investor. There's what we refer to as the not yet accredited investor. Then there's the accredited investor, and this has a specific definition where you have a million dollars of net of liquid net worth, not including your primary home, or you've made uh, $250,000 a year for the last two years and expect to make it the, the same amount this year. 
or three hundred thousand dollars if you're uh, married and fi- file jointly. A qualified client, the net worth number goes up to now two point two million, and then qualified purchaser is five million of net worth. And you know, based on the majority of the opportunities that are available to investors today because of SEC rules and regulations, uh, it makes sense that the majority of our of our client base is a credit investor or mm-hmm. let's just call it uh, above, right? So if you're not yet accredited, we do bring different types of opportunities uh, to the table and you can bring your own through uh, regulation crowdfunding platforms, uh, places like Republic and WeFunder. And uh, also there are other types of securities deals, Reg A, Reg A plus, I'm not going to go into the definitions here, where non-accredited investors can can participate in those as well. And so I think it's really, the vision is alternatives for all. Mm-hmm. The mission today, though, is just greater access to alternatives in a way that allows us to work against that vision and ultimately expand access to uh, to to everyone. All right. So with that mission, alternatives for all, are there any major goals, uh, maybe more broadly speaking, any major goals over the next few years for Alto and, and maybe in the long term as well? Well, the number one goal for us is to build the number one alternative asset marketplace in the universe. So that's, you know, objective number one in terms of what we're trying to accomplish. And if we do that, hopefully uh, we can present the necessary factual information uh, to those who decide and create and change the rules and regulations that that govern the uh the the sale of securities such that you know they, they, and I, I I'm sort of switching uh, kind of threads midstream here but what I like to say is that uh, wealth does not beget smarts mm. right it doesn't beget knowledge but knowledge can beget wealth and so the idea that only rich people can, invest in alternative assets is is both paternalistic and outdated. And and there should be, at the very least, a test by which anyone could qualify to be able to invest in alternative assets. And I, I think it may take some convincing of folks that this is a worthy endeavor, but if we can take the, the data from the investments that our clients make and we show the returns over time, hopefully our legislators and, and those who are, are commissioned to run uh, you know, the SEC can understand the importance of this opportunity for everybody, not just those with, uh, with a big wallet. Yeah, I completely agree. I think you know, knowledge of investing is completely independent of wealth in itself. And so it, it makes sense to me that there should be some sort of test rather than just, you know, how many assets, however those determinations have been traditionally made. 
So and that's, if you yeah. and if you really think about it, Nate, like investing in public companies does not guarantee you returns. Like it, uh, it, uh, and just because a company gets public doesn't mean that it's a good business or a good company. It just, it just means it met the qualifications of, like, and the and the disclosure disclosure qualifications that the SEC says says are required. But some of these, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could just no. Go we on could go on. I know. I want to go back also sort of towards the beginning of our discussion when you went through your background and and all that you had done before founding Alto. And first, I'd like to pick your brain for some advice. I think a lot of undergrad or MBA students looking to begin careers end up making a decision between investing and operating roles. So as someone who's done it both as an entrepreneur, but also a VC investor, what advice do you have for them? The first thing I would say is make sure you're not doing anything for the money. And I say that because both are really hard. They're really hard to do well. And I don't think people should choose to do anything because they think it's going to make them rich. I think they should do it because... They are called to it and because they love it and they love getting up in the morning and thinking about the next problem in in their industry and, you know, and it's something that, that excites them and drives them. And I say that because I had been an operator before I was a VC, before going back to being an operator. And as an operator, I looked at VCs and I was like, wow, I get to be involved with all these early stage companies and not have to worry about payroll at the end of the night. I just go home and like, that's their, that's their job. That's their responsibility. That's mine. Like, I just want to, I want to be a VC. And the hard part about being a VC for me was watching operators make mistakes that, that I've made before. Mm. And you can't tell, you can provide advice and guidance and hope they follow it, but if they don't, that's their decision. And I just, for for me personally, I just felt like I was, you know, on the outside looking in, and I just loved the part of being on the inside, being part of the building, being part of the team. And it's, I think it's just part of who I am that I preferred to be an operator as opposed to just a pure investor. I still make investments, mm. but it's not my day job. And I invest with people that I trust and believe in. And yeah, it's, you know, it's not my day job. Well, thank you for that. It, it is good to hear from, from someone who has done this as an investor, as a full-time job at, at one point, but then also as an entrepreneur in a few different endeavors. And on that note, I'd, I'd love to hear as we wrap up some takeaways from the times in the past that you mentioned that you had failed. And I'm curious whether those involving the financial crisis or other tough times might lend some insight into the current environment and the you know challenges that folks might be having. Yeah. So I might approach this question in a slightly different way, Nate, which is to say that especially when 
you're dealing with early stage companies, you have to catch a break. You have to get lucky. There are a lot of really smart people out there who fail all the time. And 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 it's not because they're not working hard or they didn't know what they were doing or they built a bad product. Sometimes you just have to catch a break. And, you know, I'm old, right? Like I'm 53 <laughs> years old. And part of making mistakes and, and part of failing, if, if you're paying attention, there, there are takeaways that you can use in the next thing that help you to not repeat that mistake on the one hand, but also help you keep an open mind and vision for what it is that's actually happening in front of you. And I say that because there's a saying that luck is the, the intersection of hard work and preparedness, right? So intersection of hard work and opportunity. I can't remember, I can't, you know, mm. wh whatever those two things are, I, I believe there's like a, a third vector that intersects with those and, and it's awareness, and it requires that you are seeing the luck happen. And that sounds a little bit, I don't know if it sounds weird or not, but from experience, I think it often lends itself to this ability to see something breaking your way. Or mm. if you just make this little adjustment, the tide may turn. And look, I'll be the first one to say that we've gotten lucky a few times along the way at Alto with our own development and evolution. And I think anyone who's never failed doesn't realize where they got lucky <laughs> <laughs> because it's part of it. Part of this is just outside of our control. Mm. A lot of smart people, a lot of hard workers. I, I had a soccer coach, so I played soccer through college and after college. I had a soccer coach in high school who used to say, you can't control the fields, the weather, or the referees, right? Which meant all you could do, <laughs> all you could do is play as hard as you can play, right? And uh, try and score more goals than the other guy, right? Uh, the, the cards that you're dealt, I guess. Yeah. Right. And so in business, both investing and operating, the field, the weather, and the referees, you know, the competition, the macro environment, and the consumer, the customer, in large part, they're beyond our control. But if we're paying attention, we can find product market fit and, you know, build upon that in a way that leads to success. And by the way, success to me means a sustainable business. Mm. One that doesn't require, you know, external funding or financing. That doesn't mean your business is a success or a failure or you have succeeded or failed if you don't get there. There are lots of moments in between that can be successful moments and, and moments we're celebrating. And I think it's really important uh, whether you're doing this with a team of one or three or 30 or 80, I think it's really important to celebrate those small victories along the way because otherwise it's just 
just a really long journey. <laughs> wow, I think that's great advice, needless to say. And, and it's clear that it really comes from all you've seen and done across your career. So thank you for that, Eric. And I'll now move on to our last question. We typically like to finish with a question that lets listeners get to know you a bit more. So what's a fun fact about you that most people might not know? Uh, well, I really struggle with finding the most effective way to collect and get rid of leaves that doesn't involve some really big leaf vacuum machine. It's like one of the things about me is I'm I'm always, especially when I'm doing like manual labor chores, whatever. I'm always looking for, for a way to optimize the efficiency of the task, uh, even if it takes me way longer to build the thing that makes the task efficient. I'd rather spend the time building the thing to make the task efficient than just doing the task inefficiently for all that time. So I don't know. Have you found a way with the leaves or? No, I, I, I have an idea for a way with the leaves. And as soon as I'm done with Alto, I think I'll, I'll go build this contraption. Uh, but but it, it, it doesn't exist in the store. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, I, I feel like now I have an idea of what you'll be up to next. So, Eric, it has been a real pleasure to have you on. So I, wanna, I wanted to thank you for joining us. It's, it's, it's been great. Nate, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please follow us on social media or give us a review. We appreciate your support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton Fintech, where you'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafa Austria. And until next time, I'm your host, Nate G. Thank you.